We want to invite children, if they want to attend children's church, meet your teacher in the back, just the age-appropriate setting for them. Um, as they're going, I just wanted to say a couple of things real quick about some of the songs we sang. We sang a lot of Hebrew this morning. I don't know if you noticed that. There was a lot of Hebrew in it. And so it's really, it, it might be helpful to just recover or uh, review these words real quick. Uh, one of the words we said was Yahweh. And what Yahweh is, is that's God's holy covenant name. And we're not exactly sure how to say it or how it's spelled. Uh, Hebrew is a spoken language, first and foremost. And so when they began to write it down, the only thing they wrote down were the consonants. There were no vowels. So later, and I mean later, like in the 500s, there was a group called the Masoretes. And the Masoretes said, well, we're beginning to learn, forget how to pronounce these words. And so they began to put dots and lines around the letters. They wouldn't insert anything into the holy letters, the sacred letters. They put dots and lines around it to help understand how to pronounce it. Those were the, they're called vowel dots. But when they got to the sacred name, when they got to Yahweh, they didn't touch it. What they did instead was they put the dots around it for the word Adonai. And so uh, Adonai is another word that we sang this morning. That's Hebrew for Lord. And so what the, the ancient Hebrews or the Hebrews were supposed to do as they're reading this, the, the Israelites, is when they see Yahweh and they see the vowel dots, it's to, supposed to remind them, don't say the sacred name, say the Lord instead. Um, so we've used two of those words this morning, Yahweh and Adonai. Um, now, I'm not afraid to say that the sacred name because I don't think not pronouncing a word is what God had in mind. We can go around and not pronounce a word and sin like mad. That's too easy. So when he says, take, don't take my name in vain, it's not don't say it in inappropriate times. What he's saying is, take my name and honor my name and live according to my name and don't bring dishonor upon me. So I, I think it's okay to say Yahweh. Uh, I don't think it's a violation of anything. Uh, little side note on that, first-year Hebrew students do this all the time. They see Yahweh with the vowel dots for Adonai, and they pronounce it wrong. Just, it, it, you just got to get used to it. One of the things that happened was the translators picked it up and translated incorrectly. So if you hear the name Jehovah, that's Yahuwah, which is Adonai put on Yahweh, brought into Latin, and then translated. So Jehovah isn't and never was God's name. Um, it's okay, it's in the King James Version, and it's not gonna, you know, God's not gonna zap you if you say Jehovah. But I just wanted to help you understand the relationship between Yahweh and Adonai and how we wind up with Jehovah in the middle of that. The other word that we sang a lot this morning was Alleluia. And what that is, that's a Hebrew word. It's, it's Hallel, which is to praise. The ooh sound in the middle, the you, is the second person. So he, it's second person plural. It's saying, all of you praise, all of you worship, that's halal u, is all of you. And then the ya, the J-A at the end, is the shortened version of Yahweh. So instead of spelling out all of Yahweh, they would put the Y-H. And so when we say halal u, ya, what we're saying is all of you, everyone, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And so when we sing that over and over again, that's not a magic word we say to God. That's stirring us up to pray. That's stirring us up to worship and saying, all of us, let's get together and worship God together. Um, so it's really great that we sing that like that. There's a bunch of different versions of hallelujah. Uh, some of them lack the H, like we sing hallelujah. 
Um, I think where we got that from is when you do transliterate the word into Greek, the H sound at the beginning of a word is just a little apostrophe up at the top. It's just a little dink. And I always forget the H sound when I'm reading Hebrew or Greek out loud. I always forget that and then go, what, what is that word? And I have to go back and find that little thing. So I'm wondering if maybe somewhere when it was translated into Greek, they missed the H sound at the beginning and just said, hallelujah. But that's okay too. God's not going to zap us for not saying it exactly right. And he will be praised. He will be honored no matter how we do that. So there's your little Hebrew lesson for this morning. Now you're all Hebrew scholars. I, I spent two years doing the first year of Hebrew to learn that stuff. And I'm giving it to you for free. Um, let's open in prayer now. Lord, it is appropriate that we praise you, and it is appropriate that we sing to each other and encourage each other to praise you. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that you have been honored in what we've sung. You have been honored in our business meeting. Lord, you have been honored in our fellowship. And, Lord, now I pray, I ask, I beg that you would be honored in the preaching of your word. Lord, would you show us what you have to say to us? Would you show the glory that you are due? and stir in our hearts to desire and to worship you. And Lord, I want to pray for our nation. Um, once again, we find ourselves in struggles and difficult times. Lord, we're um, bombing Syria. Uh, Father, the, the atrocities that have happened there with chemical weapons on innocent civilians is unfathomable. And Lord, I pray that uh, you have granted to our leadership wisdom and a measured response, and that uh, us and our European allies as we have sent in missiles to take out these chemical plants, Lord, I pray that you've granted those wisdom or those uh, missiles precision, uh, a precision that we never experienced in World War II, that we could put one of those missiles down a smokestack. And Lord, above all, we pray for Syria, that you would bring peace to that area. Father, would you, through the power of the gospel, through the, the glory of Jesus Christ, bring harmony to Syria and bring healing there. Uh, Lord, I pray that we're sending more than missiles. I pray that we're sending the gospel, that we're sending missionaries, that we're sending people who will go there with messages of hope. And so, Lord, please be glorified in that. Father, I pray for our nation also as uh, two young men were arrested at Starbucks for simply waiting for, their, for a friend to show up. Um, and Lord, another young man approached the house just to ask for directions and was shot at. Lord, these racial tensions that are in our nation, are, are uh, they remind me so much of the 1960s and what was going on. I thank you that we haven't had riots yet, but Lord, I pray that you would um, help us as a nation to heal this deep abiding wound of racism that we have had with us since our foundation as we imported slaves from Africa unjustly, inhumanely, and wrongly taken other people to be their slaves. Lord, I pray that our nation would... I pray that these turmoil, this, this, this um, uprising, this tr struggle that we're going through is a sign of healing. Just like when you get a cut and it itches, that means it's healing. Lord, I pray that this is a beginning of healing in our nation. And Father, I pray for your evangelical church in America that she would be speaking clearly the message of reconciliation, that we would be leading the way in, in uh, bringing harmony to our, our people because Lord, we see all people created in the image of God. That's the answer. That's the hope is the forgiveness of sins and the presence of a God who loves us, who created us in his image and, and has redeemed all people to himself. So Lord, help your church to be faithful with that message. And Lord, as I've asked, I ask again, would you be with us now as we 
begin to look into your word. Help us to see and understand what it is that you're saying to us this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. So last week, Dan preached, and I listened, Lisa and I listened to the message on the way home. We were driving down from Chico, and I thought he did a wonderful job. I've heard nothing but, but praises from everybody who heard the message, one of the, one of the best he's ever done. And so, Dan, thank you so much for doing that. I was joking around earlier about we remove the hymnals so that people don't have anything heavy to throw at us when the preaching goes too long, but wasn't necessary. He, he did a fine job. Um, so I, I'm really grateful that I have an elder who is able and willing and loves to stand up and, and fill in like that. I don't have to scramble if I need to take a Sunday off. So thank you. Uh, it's a, really a blessing. Um, the previous week before that was Easter. And so we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and what the resurrection means. Um, and then if you can remember, and I'm, you know, it's a long time, three weeks ago, we looked at uh, chapter 48 from Genesis. And what I said at the time was that we are entering the end of Jacob's life, and what we hear from that point on is nothing but blessing. He's doing nothing but speaking about God. This is a man at the end of his life. And so this morning, as you heard when, uh, when Paul read, at the end of this, Jacob draws his feet up into his bed, closes his eyes, his last, and dies. And uh, so this is the end of Jacob's life. What we're going to look at this morning as we go through this section is we're going to talk about Jacob's confidence. What is he confident in? And then we're going to look at Jacob's future as he pronounces these blessings on his sons. And then finally, what's Jacob's hope as he draws his feet up into his bed? And um, one of the things I, I think is kind of important is to remember this, this outline that we got of Genesis and how does this fit in? Because you remember the first quarter of the book was what I called primordial history. And it covered a, a huge span of time in 12 short chapters, 11 short chapters, from creation to fall to the, tower, uh, to the flood to the Tower of Babel in a very short order of, of time, 12, 11 chapters, and we zip through it. The next quarter of the book is, all, is primarily focused on Abraham. And what's going on there is we take this God who is the creator of all, and he creates covenant. He binds himself in a promise to Abraham and to his offspring. And so we saw Abraham walking in this covenant. God makes this covenant three times with him over and over again, repeats that message. And then the next section was Isaac and primarily Jacob. Isaac is really brief. I mean, he has a long life and we get hardly anything about him. It's primarily about Jacob. And what's going on there is we see that God is being faithful to transmit that covenant promise to his people. So it doesn't die when Abraham dies. It continues on, and it continues to go on through Jacob. And then this last portion, I said, we're, this is primarily focused on Joseph. That's mostly what this is about. And the way that fits in is Moses is writing to Israel and telling them, you came into Egypt as celebrated guests. Your brother Joseph was a prince in Egypt. You were not a conquered people drug in as slaves. You were honored. And so that's, that's this last portion. So how does Jacob, taking over all of chapter 49, Joseph is mentioned in the second person. It's not, Joseph doesn't even show up in this chapter. How does that fit in, or did I really blow my outline? Um, well, yeah, you guys know me. I'm not going to admit defeat. <laughs> this is really important because this fits in with Moses' narrative, trying to explain to Israel who their God is and who they are. And so at this point, he focuses on Jacob because Jacob is a major part of the story, but he's also focusing on how this fits into the future, the future that Israel will see, 
the future that we will see. So we'll get that as we go. So let's take a look first at this brief uh, two verses at the beginning, uh, Jacob's confidence. And so here's where it begins. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So what Jacob is doing here is he's calling his sons together, um, the, the 12 sons that he's had. He's drawing them close, and he's making this pronouncement to them. It almost sounds like a last will and testament, doesn't it? It's, it sounds like he's, he's saying, here's how I'm going to divide things up. And there's a touch of that, but there is a whole lot more to this than that. Because when you divide up your property at the end of your life, you divide up what you own, right? You don't divide up, well, you know, I intended to buy this plot of land up in Tehachapi, so here, son, you can have that. I never got around to it, but how much of the promised land does Jacob own at this point? He owns a graveyard, period. And he doesn't divide that up. He says, go bury me there. So what he's doing is not his last will and testament. What's happening here is Jacob is a prophet. He is, he, at this point in his life, he is announcing a prophecy to his sons. Um, and um, it, so it, it's his impression of his boys. It's his, his desire. But he knows that there's more to it because he tells them flat out, I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. This is him prophesying. Also, you remember at the end of the section, uh, verse 28, it says, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Moses said that to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's basically saying, this is y'all. Uh, so he knows that what Jacob did at this point is prophecy. And I love the way John Calvin explains this. This is a, a slight paraphrase of, of Calvin because he wrote in really ancient ways, but I'm trying to update it a little bit, but it's, it's pretty close to what he said. This is how Calvin comments on this. He said, Here also we perceive the manly fortitude of holy Jacob's breast, or his heart, really. So here's we perceive the fortitude of Jacob's heart, who, though a decrepit old man and an exile, lying on his private and lowly couch, nevertheless assigns provinces to his sons as though they were from a lofty king, a lofty throne of a great king. So you get this old decrepit man laying on this, this couch of his, dying, but the way he speaks is as if a king is pronouncing how his kingdom will be divided. There's this royal authority to the, what he says. Calvin goes on. He says, He also does this knowing that the promise of the covenant of God was given to him, and, to, and by this covenant, He's been called the heir and the Lord of the land of Canaan. And at the same time, he claims for himself authority as a prophet of God. So he's, he's looking at the promised land and he says, I am heir to that. God has promised me that in his covenant, that I will gain this land. Yet he knows he's about to pull his feet up and die. And so he looks to his sons and with his authority, he's parting out the land to his sons and doing it as a prophet because he knows this is not going to happen in his lifetime. He can't go and ensure these things happen, so he speaks as if a prophet. And, and when he does this, we need to remember that prophets don't just say things they want to happen. They don't just prophesy what they think is going to happen. It's, it's not just them speaking. So uh, Peter in 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, including this prophecy. 
This prophecy was not produced because Jacob thought, oh, this is a good idea. This is him prophesying over his sons in a way that would, uh, that is God speaking to them. No prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, including holy Jacob. He is speaking as God is carrying him along. And the other thing to keep in mind is, is when prophets are speaking, they understand to some degree that their prophecy is not only for the people they're talking to. It's not only about them. It's not only about their people they're speaking to. When, when prophets are speaking, they have this sense that there's something bigger going on because they must have a sense that God is speaking here. And so Peter again, 1 Peter this time, uh, 1.10 says, concerning this salvation, the salvation that we have in Christ, the prophets who prophesied by the grace that was to be yours, or who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, um, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So these prophets, they prophesy, and they're talking to the nation before them, and yet, in a sense, they say, boy, there's more going on here. There's much more happening. And so they inquire into what they've just said or what they've just written, and they're reaching for more. So it doesn't appear that Jacob had a whole bunch of time to do that um, because he finishes speaking and he rolls over and dies. But um, maybe he did. Maybe he had that sense. There's more here. God is going to do some wonderful things. And as he closed his eyes and as he pulled the blankets a little tighter, maybe he was just pondering as he slipped into glory. What are you up to, God? What's going on? It's more than just my boys. There's more here. And so that's what we're going to see. This is Jacob's confidence, is that he's resting on these prophecies. He's resting on these covenant promises that God made to Abraham, that he successfully transmitted to Isaac, and that he finally gave to Jacob. And Jacob, at the end of his life, looks forward and he goes, I'm counting on these promises similarly being transmitted to my sons. Because, Lord, you said that. You've made that promise. So even for us, even if God hasn't necessarily put a prophecy in our mouth, that we have to speak, he has written down his promises for us. He's put them in our hands. And so like Jacob, we can count on those promises and we can look forward. We can say with confidence, there are things coming for us. We know for a fact there are things coming for us. Even if I don't have a specific word for a specific person at a specific time, the scriptures are telling us something magnificent. For example, Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Saint, you can say with confidence exactly what waits ahead of you. You have been predestined. You have been called. You are walking with Christ and you will be glorified. Paul puts it in the present tense. It is such a deal. It is such a confident thing. You will be glorified. You have that confidence in your future. So it's not just Jacob sitting on his bed that can prophesy. You can look to the word of God and claim that promise and remember that promise. All things work together for your good. You will be glorified with Christ. And that I thought that was a helicopter coming in or something. Um, 
And if I can offer one more briefly, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is your future, saint. Just as sure as Jacob can pronounce to his sons, this is what's coming for you, boys. We can look to our scriptures and say, this is what waits us. This is the prophecy that God has laid before you is he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. I don't mean to let you down. Y'all are seated in a warehouse in Lancaster. The promise is we will be seated in the heavenly places with Christ. That's a sure, unbreakable promise of God. So now as we launch into look at Jacob's future, as we study what he's about to say to his sons, I want you to have that same kind of confidence that What Jacob is saying here applies to his sons and applies beyond. They were written about us. They were written for our salvation, about our salvation. And so we have the promises that carry that that same promise forward. We will be glorified. We will be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's great news. And so let's have that same confidence. Now, when we come to this next section, Jacob's future is really all of the poem that he says to his sons. And he goes through all 12 boys and he says something about each one of them. I think it would be awesome to go through each one of these prophecies and and trace it through the scriptures and see how it's fulfilled. It would make a fantastic Sunday school class. I'm afraid it would make a bit of a tedious sermon. And so I'm not going to do exactly that. I'm going to cheat a little bit. And I know y'all are waiting for Zebulun, or no, Issachar. Because Issachar, I heard some, hmm, when when he read about Issachar. I'm going to skip that. There are a handful of people that Jacob really draws attention to, and there's a lengthy prophecy about them. And then there's a handful of his sons that he just mentions in passing. Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. Okay? It's not really a promise or a blessing. It's just a statement. So what I want to do this morning is focus on, the, on four of the people in, this, uh, in his list. They're the bigger ones, the longer prophecies. Uh, we'll look at what he says to Reuben what he says to Simeon and Levi, and then finally what he says to uh, Joseph. And what I want to do is find in this Jacob looking towards his future. What is the promise here and, and what is going on with this? So if you pardon me, I'm going to skip the shorter ones. Is that okay? Nobody going to get mad? This is why we took the hymnals out. Is because at this point, you know, people are going to start lobbing stuff. You're not preaching the whole chapter. Um, so let's, let's take a look at the first one. Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And you can just see Reuben at this point rustling up the cape, you know, pulling his, his, his shawl over his shoulders a little bit, feeling pretty good. That's right. You got to look into the brothers. That's right. Preeminent here, buddy. I'm preeminent. He's looking to his firstborn child, and he says, you were, you were the sign of my, my strength. You were the first fruits. And then it turns, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And the way it translates it in the ESV, it's like an exclamation, he went up to my couch. 
Just kind of like, can you guys believe that? Right? It's like an interruption in the middle of the prophecy. What's going on here is, is Reuben was his firstborn, and the law of the firstborn was the, the firstborn would get double what all the other brothers got. He would be the one on whom the, the heritage of the family would pass. And so Reuben would be expecting that because he was the firstborn, but something happened. And it's, it's so briefly mentioned, uh, it, it almost seems inconsequential, but here towards the end of the book, it, it really matters. Uh, Genesis 35:22. it says, While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Almost a throwaway sentence. The repercussions of that are huge. Reuben has forfeited his, his position as firstborn. So Jacob looks at the firstborn, he says, it's not you. Because you defiled my, my bed, because you went up on my couch, you're cut off. You're, he's not cut off. He's not cut out of the inheritance. He's just not going to get the firstborn status. It passes. And so who's next? Who's born next? Well, the next people are Simeon and Levi. They were born after Reuben. So maybe Simeon and Levi are going, maybe it's us. So here's what Jacob has to say to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Okay, good. All right, maybe we'll split the, the, the inheritance. We'll be the firstborn. We'll be the, you know, kind of in charge. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, nor, oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. In their willing willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So, boy, that was pretty quick. That was like no pulling any punches. You guys are violent. Do you remember what happened was, um, was in uh, Genesis chapter 34? They were near this town called Shechem, and Dinah went and was hanging out with some of the women from the, the village. Well, Shechem, the prince of Shechem, when you're a prince, you get a town named after you, I guess. Shechem saw Dinah and said, hey, she's pretty hot. And he forced her. He raped her. But he loved her. He, he did it in, in a foolish way. It was a horrible thing to do, but he loved her. And he said, I, I want to marry her. And so what it says in uh, in Genesis 34, beginning in verse 13, it says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for it would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you all become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. And the key word in that sentence, or in that, that, that uh, chunk is deceitfully. They were not inviting them into the Abrahamic covenant. They were not saying, take the sign of the Abraham covenant on yourself and become like we are. This was something that they were doing deceitfully. A little bit later, uh, uh, starting in verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and they killed his son Shechem with the sword and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The, son, pardon me, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their, city, their sister. So though it was Simeon and Levi who did the violence, the whole brothers kind of joined in on it. And so what Jacob is looking is he's saying, I don't want the future of my people to be in hands of people like this. 
these kind of violent, because the brothers already followed him. I don't want it to happen again. So Levi and Simeon, no, you won't be firstborn. But there's more to this too, isn't there? It wasn't just, you're not going to get the firstborn status. He says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What a curious thing to say. Who's Jacob and who's Israel? The guy speaking. How is he going to divide them? What Jacob is doing, this is that first hint that we get that he is looking toward the future. He is looking toward when they come into the promised land and when they begin to divide the land up amongst the brothers, amongst the tribes, who gets what. And what he's just prophesied is Levi and Simeon aren't going to get an inheritance. They'll be scattered. And so if you've read ahead in your Bible, if you've read um, on into the law, or J, uh, um, Joshua, then you know what happened is Levi is the tribe of the priests. This is the tribe of the temple workers, the, the tabernacle workers. And what Moses tells them is you don't get an inheritance because Yahweh is your inheritance. So you don't get a chunk of land. Instead, what you get is these cities scattered throughout all of Israel. You get the city and you get a certain distance around the city to raise your uh, crops or your, your cattle or whatever it is. But you don't get an inheritance because Yahweh will be your inheritance. And so we know that's a fact with, with uh, Levi. That just is the way it was. But what about Simeon? Uh, doesn't Simeon get an inheritance? Actually not. According to Joshua 19, beginning of verse 9, it says, The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah, because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. The people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. So the, the southern portion that belonged to Judah was too big. They couldn't fill it right away. And so they scattered Simeon in the middle of it. So this is exactly what happened. Levi and Simeon are scattered throughout Israel. They're scattered in the promised land. Now, how on earth could Jacob have known that? There's no way for him to have known that. Oh, well, then Moses must have, you know, backfilled the information. Really? Because Moses never sets foot in the promised land. He dies before they start dividing it up. There's no way that either Jacob saying it nor Moses writing it could have known exactly how that was going to play out. This is what it means for a prophecy. They're looking forward. They're looking ahead to see what's going to happen. So that's, that's the, um, the curse on them. Although we're not done with Simeon. Um, Simeon's got a little bit more. In 1 Chronicles 4, beginning of verse 42, it says, And some of them, 500 men of the Simeonites, went to Mount Seir, having as their leaders a couple of guys. Um, and they defeated the remnant of the Malachites who had escaped, and they live there to this day. So eventually Simeon goes into Mount Seir. Mount Seir is Esau, Jacob's brother's land. That's where he settled. And so Simeon and his tribe, they wind up going up and they get a chunk of real estate after all. But they were initially scattered throughout the nations. So, okay, so it's not Reuben. It's not, um, it's not Simeon and Levi. Who's next in line? Well, it's Judah. Let's see how Judah fares. This is what Jacob says to his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now we know who gets it. Judah will be the ruler. That prophecy is that the scepter won't depart from him and the ruler's staff won't be depart from his feet. Do you get what Jacob just said? He's looking at his sons. Not a big tribe, not a huge amount of people. They're, they've had to immigrate from the promised land because they're starving to death. And he looks at Judah and says, a king is going to come from you. You're going to have perpetual rulers sitting on a throne. That's faith that you just can't imagine. It'd be like looking at it here and saying, one of you, you are going to be president. Or you are going to have a multinational company or something. It's like, us? We're just normal folks. That's not going to happen. Jacob is prophesying, and he knows exactly what this means. So for Judah, Judah's brothers will praise him. Now, how did Judah wind up in this position? Do you remember when Judah had two boys and, you know, they were evil and God killed them? And he wound up sleeping with his daughter-in-law because she tricked him because he wouldn't. I mean, how does Judah, that guy, how does he wind up here? Well, do you remember at the end of the story when Joseph was not revealing himself to his brothers? It was Judah who stepped up and said, take me. Don't, don't take Benjamin. Take me. If you take Benjamin, my father is going to die, and I, just, I can't bear it, so let me step in and take his place. Judah, at the end, showed leadership. Yeah, he started out pretty horrible, but he stepped up and he cared for his brothers. He cared for his father. And so his father looks and says, this is the kind of leadership that we want in our nation. These are the kind of people we're looking for. Your brothers will praise you, and your hand will be on your enemy's neck. That's the most vulnerable spot. You get your hand on them. You're going you're gonna to win. Judah is a lion's cub. He's like a, a lion crouching down, a lioness that you don't ever mess with. And, and we sang about the tribe of Judah, or the lion of Judah. And I was really glad Ramey read what I was going to read, which is Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is the lion of Judah. Do you think maybe John was thinking of this prophecy and saying, see, that's where that comes from. So that, that's where he leads to. Uh, one of the phrases in here is a little hard to translate. And you'll notice that when, um, when Paul read from the NIV, it was different than what I read from the uh, ESV. It's until tribute comes or until Shiloh comes. Um, the, uh, uh, the NIV says, until he to whom it belongs comes. Uh, King James and, and NASB mentioned Shiloh. Uh, it's a hard phrase to translate. It's, it's handled in different ways. And I'm not going to pretend to iron it out because the, commentator, or the, uh, the Bible translators couldn't do it, so who am I? Here's what's happening, though. It has, in however you translate it, it has the sense of one who is coming. And, and the, the promise here is that Judah will be the ruler until someone comes. Because it says, um, until Shiloh comes, until he who comes, until tribute comes in, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So we're talking here about a specific person, not a plot of land or something. So this, this tribute receiving person or this Shiloh or whoever that is, is one who's going to come from Judah. And that's where the culmination of this promise of a ruler will be because 
to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, when he says obedience of the people, the peoples there is not the nations. That's the Hebrew word goyim, or Gentile. And that's not the word that's used there. The word that's used there is um, which is people. And what's kind of confusing is it can have a kinship relationship, but it doesn't have to. Uh, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, when it's talking about the people. So here's what I think is going on, is I think he's looking forward to the coming of Christ. He's looking to Jesus to come. Because, like, for example, Psalm 2 says, um, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That little you are my son is used repeatedly through the New Testament, and it always points to Jesus. So this is a messianic psalm about Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what he's talking about there is the nations coming to Jesus. And so that's the fulfillment of that prophecy is Jesus, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah and the nations flow to him. He will rule the nations. Um, so that, that's that picture of this obedience. Again, do you get the promise that, that Jacob is making here? Not just you're going to have a king in your midst, but the people are going to come to him. His people, his kingsmen will come to him like they did with David. When David took over the throne after Saul died, David ascended to the throne and hit the, the nation came to him and said, we are your bone and flesh. You be our king. And so that would be the immediate fulfillment of the kinsmen. But the nations are flowing into Jesus and saying, you're our king. The nations are coming in and saying, we're submitting to you. So to him comes the obedience, not just of his people, but the people the fullness of people. That's what Jacob just said to this scraggly little band of brothers who can't even get along, is the nations are going to flow into this. That's a huge promise. That's, that's gigantic. And then finally, skipping ahead, um, really, Issachar would be interesting, a crouching between the sheepfolds, uh, the strong donkey. That would be fun. Um, but let's skip ahead to Joseph, because Joseph is the last one that's a lengthy promise that, that um, Jacob made, uh, makes. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shoot at him, harass him severely, yet his bow remains unmoved. His arms are made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your father are, all my, are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who set apart from his brothers. These are Joseph, or Jacob's final words, and what are they about? Are they about how cool Joseph is? What a great story he had. He's, you know, he's a magnificent manager. I, I'm asking Joseph now to write a book on management because he, he led Egypt so well. No, it's not about Joseph. The last words that come out of Jacob's mouth, look at what Yahweh's going to do. Look at our holy God and the blessings he's going to pour out. He preserved us through Joseph. He led us and he's saving us. He's preserving us now. And so all of these blessings are on Joseph. 
That's his final thought, is not how great his sons are, not make sure you guys don't fight. It is God is so good, and he's demonstrated his goodness to us through what he's done in, in Joseph's life. And that's a powerful thing to, remind, to be reminded of. Um, so let's just kind of stop here and recap. What has Joseph just seen of his future? Or Jacob, what has Jacob just seen of his future? Because I said this was Jacob's future. This is what he's counting on to come to pass. Is he's going to die. He's not going to see the promised land. His eyes will be closed when he goes into a hole in the ground there. But he's counting on his, his offspring going. So what he's just said is a ruler, not just from his family, but of the nations, will come from his, his tribe, his group. He says that God will remain faithful to his family as seen in the blessings on Joseph. God will remain, even though we're going into, the, into slavery, or well, he doesn't know slavery yet, but even though we're going into Egypt, we know that God is going with us. God is going to bring these blessings on us. And then finally, he remembers the covenant promises made to Abraham that they will come true. His offspring will inherit the promised land as they've seen. Because he mentions to Levi, you're going to be scattered. To Simeon, you're going to be, you're going to be dispersed through your brothers. When they come in, when they take over the promised land, that's our hope. These are God's covenant promises. Jacob sees his future as secure, not because he raised his boys well. Anybody think he, you know, anybody want to read a book on Jacob's family uh, or Jacob's uh, uh, how to raise children like Jacob? Um, I don't think it would sell well. He's counting on all of the covenant promises that God made through Abraham, transmitted to his father Isaac, and now rest on him, and he's counting on them going to his sons. That's where his hope and his confidence is. So he's looking toward that future. He wants that kind of future. And then Moses interrupts us. At the very end of this, this section, Moses throws a commentary in, and he says, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. What Moses has just done is he's looked at everything that Jacob said, and then he looks to his audience, because what he's talking to is the 12 tribes of Israel. And he said, all of this is you. All of this is for you, Israel. This is what God has been saying for you. And so he's calling on the tribe, uh, the nation of Israel, all the tribes, the 12 tribes, he's calling on them to trust Yahweh. Look at what he's been doing. Look at what he's done. He says, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Your fathers have been blessed like that. So again, that outline, how does this fit in? This is really furthering Moses' point at this point. He's reminding him, you guys did not go to Egypt as slaves. The last thing that was said to you before you moved and settled in Egypt was this tremendous blessing, this huge promise of going back to Canaan, of taking the whole thing over. You 12 tribes need to remember this is who you are. This is where you're headed. And it was never the design of God to leave you in slavery here. It was always God's design to lead you out. So that's why it fits into this, this um, promise that they're not going to be defeated. They're, they're going to go in as, as honored guests, and God goes in with them, and he will lead them back out. So finally, the end of the section is Jacob's hope. What is, he, what is he counting on? What is he hoping for? So then he says to them, to his, his sons, he says, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. And then he kind of continues to describe it. So what he's saying here is, gather me to my people. Where is he about to go when he dies? He's going to be with Isaac. 
He's going to be with Jacob or with uh, um, uh, Abraham. He's going to be with Father Noah. He's going to be with Adam. He's going to be with his people. His hope here is not when my eyes close, I blink out of existence and I'm done. His hope is after I close my eyes, I'm with them because God's been faithful to us. And so that's, that's his hope. But he's also got more. It's not just one of the problems sometimes is we can get too spiritual and everything happens in spiritual ways and it's all spiritual and everything, nothing concrete matters. Listen to what it next he says. He says, and bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite. So don't just, you know, my, my spirit has flown, my body's useless, just throw it in the junk pile. He says, no, go bury me with my, take me from Egypt, haul me all the way back there as a dead body decaying and put me in the cave that my, my fathers are in. Because I expect to be raised with them in that cave. I want all of us to be together. I'm going to be with them temporarily, but my body needs to go rest with them because that's where I want to be when I, when I come back. And then the rest of this is he goes through this detailed explanation of where this cave is and what it's like. And do you remember when Abraham bought it? They repeated the description. They repeated the thing, I think, like two or three times in there. And it was like, this is tedious. Why? Because what Jacob is saying here is we have a legal claim to that piece of property. It's the only piece of land we own in all of the promised land at this point. And so this is rehearsed over and over again so that no one can say, well, you don't own that. The, Israel will always be able to recount, this is the story of how we bought it. And so Jacob does the same thing. He, he basically pulls out and reads the title to him again. This is the land that we own. And when he had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. It's over. Jacob's story is done. I think at this point it may be helpful to kind of glance back real quick at Jacob's life. Because the man we just saw pull his feet into his bed and breathe his last is not the man we saw at the beginning. Do you remember who he was when he started? When he, before he was born, his mother Rebecca was told the, younger, or the, the older will serve the younger. That was a prophecy. God somehow came and told Rebecca that. And so in chapter 25, Jacob winds up stealing his brother's birthright. He thought he would help God out by deceiving his brother. His brother comes in shaking about to collapse, and Jacob's just sitting there stirring the stew. What's up, dude? Uh, look, uh, just feed me. Okay. How about some birthright? Take it. If I, if I don't eat, I'm going to die anyway. Jacob stole it from him. Did he have to? Didn't God tell him the older will serve the younger? He's not trusting God. He believes, he believes the story that that will happen, but he's not trusting God to bring it about in God's way. He's going to make it happen. The next thing that happens is he's not done stealing. He hears Isaac say, my son Esau, go catch some game for me and feed me. And then when you, you've brought your game and then I'll bless you and, and I'll give you the inheritance. And so he deceives his own blind, dying father. He goes in and lies to him. Because again, he's not trusting God. He believes God. He believes that the promise that he will, he will take the inheritance. But he's determined to steal it. He feels he has to take it from him. And so he deceives his own ailing, dying father. And then when he goes to uh, Haran to get a wife, remember how he got ripped off. You know, this, this swindling kind of runs in the family. Laban is the better car dealer of the two. So Laban rips him off, marries off his, his, uh, his daughter, who's not as attractive as the younger one, 
and then tries to, to make him work for free. And so Jacob strikes a deal. I'll tell you what, dude, I'll take all the mottled sheep. Any sheep with any, any discoloration, they're mine. And Laban's like, sounds good. And then do you, I don't know if you remember this, but Laban then tells his men, go grab all the sheep that have colors in them and get them out. So Laban is trying to rip him off. And what Jacob does is he resorts to superstition. If I put black and white stripes in front of them as they mate, then they'll mate and have black and white babies. That is utter nonsense. That doesn't work. It doesn't matter what you're looking at when you have a baby. They just, they turn out that way. It's called genetics. What Jacob was doing is he was relying on his own craftiness, his own what he thought would trick nature into giving him what he wanted. Why did his flock increase? Because Yahweh blessed him, because God was with him, because God made the sheep come out mottled instead of all white. And so again, he's, he's believing God, but he's not trusting him. He's going to fight. And then finally, when he's called back to the promised land, right, he's coming home and Esau's waiting. And Jacob's thinking, oh man, is he going to be mad? last I heard, he was going to kill me. And so Jacob tries to butter him up. He starts sending stuff ahead. Here, have some of this, and have some of this, and have some of this. And hey, aren't these cute? These kids cute? Aren't they nice? And then he's going to show up at the very last and say, hi, um, are we cool? And what happens is Esau comes and grabs him and hugs him and says, I've missed you. <laughs> I thought you were going to kill me. He's trying to swindle his way into it. Why did Esau change his heart? Because God changed Esau's heart. That's why. So all along, Jacob has been trying to second-guess God. He doesn't disbelieve God. He just doesn't trust him. But what do we see of this man, Jacob, at the end of his life? I've got this promise that I have no way of swindling my way into. There, I'm, I'm about to die. There's nothing I can do to make this happen. And yet he pronounces it as if it is sure as, as day. He, he is a changed man. He has gone from not trusting God to absolutely trusting God. So he could announce, I'm going to be with my fathers. You plant me in the cave that my fathers are in. I plan on resurrecting someday. I want to be there when it happens. He's gone from not trusting to trusting. And what I find hopeful in this is I sometimes don't trust God. I sometimes struggle with, really, that's what you want to do? Oh. And yet I look, can look at Jacob and go, God used him anyway. God did what he was going to do anyway. It didn't, there was nothing Jacob did that frustrated God's plan. God's covenant promise was, you will inherit the, the promised land. You will be as numerous as the stars. It's going to happen. And even though Jacob tried to wiggle his way through it and do it in his own fashion, ultimately God prevailed. And he didn't prevail by shutting Jacob down. He did it by transforming Jacob, by leading him through life into a life of faith and a life of trust, a life of hope so that he could look forward and trust God. And that's the good news for us, is we're all going to screw it up at some point. We're all going to try to guide God's hand a little bit, and this would be really cool if we did it that way. And the great news is God loves you anyway. And he doesn't, I, I think of a father, you know, when the child grabs the dad's hand and, and just smiling and going, that's sweet. Here we go, let's go this way. And he's going to transform you along the way. It's not like he boxes your ears and says, sit down and be quiet. He's a father who would grab your hand and lead you in the right way. Jacob gives us hope that God will do this. He gave Israel hope. Israel, what did Israel do while they were wandering in the wilderness? They messed up royally. They went and saw the promised land, and they said, we can't do it. We can't do it. 
We can't. Caleb and Joshua are both going, yeah, right, but God's with us, so let's go do it. So they needed to hear this message as well. They needed to hear God is going to transform you. He's going to lead you. And he's going to take you to a place. And you don't have to be perfect. He's working on it. So that's the message I think that we get out of this is God is faithful when we're not. So we see holy Jacob draw his feet up and die in faith, trusting the Lord, looking forward to the fulfillment of his promise. It was important for Israel to know it. It's important for us to know it. It's important for us to trust. Next week, we get the end of Joseph, too, and we wrap up the book of Genesis. I'm kind of dreading it. I want it to keep going. I'm thinking maybe we should jump into Exodus, but then we get into the curtains and the rods and the boards, and it's a little too much. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little too much. So uh, we'll just finish Genesis, and then uh, after that, we'll start the book of Acts. So let's close in prayer. Lord, I confess to you that I am not the perfect man. Lord, I confess to you that my faith at times is very strong and at times is, is threadbare. And Lord, I don't count on the strength and the pervasiveness of my faith to carry me through. Lord, I trust that you are a God who loves me and will carry me through. And Lord, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking for everybody else in the room to say we're not perfect. And we don't always trust you as we should. And we sometimes want to force your hand. But Lord, thank you for being faithful to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being that lion, that one who has the scepter, who's, who the rod of the ruler never departed from your hand. Lord, we thank you that you have never in your entire life had a moment of faith that was threadbare. But Lord, even in your despondency, even in the, the troubling of your heart, when you cried out to your father, why have you forsaken me? Lord, it was a cry of faith. And thank you for being faithful in our place, for being our our, our Judah who will rule over us, the one who will represent us, the, the greater son of David who will go before us so that when we enter into the gates of heaven, we march behind our leader. And Lord, I pray also that you would do for us what you did for Jacob. Lord, I pray that we're not quite as hard headed, that we would bend to your ways more rapidly. But Lord, I pray that you would do the same for us. Lord, would you increase our faith? Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would pour into us a love for God that is so rich and so deep that we can't help but trust him. Lord, give us faith, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.